As we open God's word and we come, uh, once again, let's bow together asking the Lord's assistance that he would open our hearts and minds. Our Father, we come humbly before your word, asking that you would please work through it in our hearts and our lives. We thank you that you've given us your word that is mighty and powerful. It's able to pierce down into our souls, into our hearts. And we ask that that powerful sword of the word would pierce us this morning for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you know, money is a powerful thing. As they say, money makes the world go round. Money motivates people to do all sorts of things, feats of, uh, of great daring and feats of great evil, all for the sake of money. But money is not just powerful in terms of a human motivator, but money is also powerful because it has great spiritual power upon people. It can pose a great spiritual danger, as the Bible says, over the souls of people. Now, this does not mean that money in and of itself is inherently evil, as if the very dollar bills in your pocket are somehow uh, tainted and evil and you need to get rid of them. But it means that it can tempt us in some significant ways. And it's for this reason that the scriptures say so much about the danger of wealth, prosperity, riches, and money. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6 the following words, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The words could hardly be stronger that there is danger of falling away from the faith, of abandoning Jesus altogether because of the power of money. There is the danger of piercing ourselves with many pangs, of plunging into ruin and destruction. Money can be a seductress who ultimately kills her lover. It's an acid that erodes faith. It's a trap that plunges people into ruin. And it's in this vein, with this as background, that Jesus addresses his disciples in Luke chapter 16. And I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible copy with you this morning, you can use one that's in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you'll find our passage this morning on page 1040. Jesus knows that we deal with money every day. It's inescapable in our life that we must need a medium of exchange in order to live in our world. We need it to survive. It's not something that we can avoid. But there should be a difference in the way that a Christian handles his money and the way that an unbeliever handles his money. We who are followers of Jesus Christ should handle our finances differently from those who do not know the Lord. 
We have a different set of priorities, and we should be driven by a different set of motives when it comes to our wealth. But with that said, we should, you know, one says we should stand out from unbelievers in the way that we handle our money, but sometimes there are qualities that unbelievers exhibit that we can learn from. For example, it's, it, we often admire athletes for their dedication, for their hard work, their devotion to their sport. But we cannot commend the selfish motives, the, the motives for glory and self-aggrandizement that, that, that drives them to do what they do. There's a commendable quality in the midst of condemnable qualities. We can have, take the one and leave the rest. And in the same way, Jesus is going to do the same thing in our passage this morning. He's going to teach a principle to his disciples from the example of an otherwise shady guy. Now, he's, Jesus is not approving of everything that this man in his story does, but is only drawing out one key principle that can be learned. And that principle relates to how we handle money. So let's begin by reading our text this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. It says, He, being Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God bless its truths upon our hearts. In this text this morning, we're going to see Jesus give us three pieces of practical advice on how to use our money for spiritual gain. Three pieces of practical advice. But before we get to those pieces of practical advice, we first need to look at the parable that Jesus gives us and examine this story. So let's first look at the parable and then we'll look at how Jesus applies it in the 
practical advice he gives us. The parable is given in verses 1 through verse 8, the first part of verse 8. Now, this parable has been subject to an innumerable amount of interpretations because believers come to this through the centuries and have initially read it and become puzzled. What is Jesus talking about here? And they've struggled primarily with the fact that the protagonist of the story, the example that Jesus points to and says, learn from him, is an unrighteous guy, a dishonest manager. And so it makes us wonder, is Jesus wanting us to do what that shady guy is doing? That doesn't feel right. And so there's been all sorts of explanations, and we don't have time this morning. There, there could be, a, you could hear a whole hour of the different ways that people have tried to interpret this through different allegories and all sorts of uh, interpretations. And, um, but I believe that once we take a look at it, that the point that Jesus is trying to get across is fairly easy to understand. This parable does not need to be a stumbling block. And let me just say, friends, that it's passages like this that uh, I said to our TC group a few weeks ago that I was coming up on this passage and I wasn't exactly looking forward to it because of how difficult and puzzling it is from first, a first go. But this is a good lesson and reminder for us that all of God's word is inspired and all of it is important for us. That there is no part of God's inspired word that we should avoid or we should skip over and that we need all of it for our lives and that includes this passage here for us this morning. So let's look at this text. Beginning with verse one, I want you to notice who he's speaking this parable to. It says, and he also he said to the disciples, he begins, the passage begins. Now you remember we finished chapter 15 and that passage had three different parables and those were specifically given to the scribes and the Pharisees responding to their grumbling over Jesus' interaction with sinners. Here the audience changes to the disciples. But the Pharisees aren't far off because if you let your eye glance down to verse 14, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. They're listening to, even though Jesus may have turned to address his disciples. But let's look at these different parts of the stories that he gives to his disciples, beginning in verse 1. And the first part of the story is the manager's reckoning in verses 1 and 2. It says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. This rich man was most likely a landowner, one who owned property, and it seems that he owned it in a place that he did not himself reside, and so he set up a manager or a steward who would be there to take care of the property and the business dealings as relating to that property while he is living in a distant land. This man who's who's in charge of his property in the stead of the rich man is translated a manager or a steward. It's one who acts on behalf of the owner. He has the authority and the responsibility to act on his master's behalf. He can put his master into binding agreements because he has that authority given to him. But he hears reports, this rich man who isn't there on the ground, but has heard reports that the manager, the one he put in charge, is not trustworthy. He's dishonest. He's wasting away the possessions of the rich man. 
This word wasting is the same word used of the prodigal son who went out into the far country and wasted his property or wasted his money. It refers to scattering or squandering. He's throwing away his master's money and possessions to the wind, and he did not take care with that which was not his to begin with. And so in this sense, he's failed as a steward. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it's, it's the job of a steward to be faithful. He's not being faithful. He's failed as a steward. And it's because of this report that the master then calls him to account. Look at verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. There's a confrontation. There's a reckoning that happens. Listen, I've heard this report. What is this that I hear? How is it that you could be doing this? It doesn't matter what this man says. And it seems from the account of the story that the manager doesn't dispute the facts. He doesn't launch into a big disputation, doesn't defend himself. He doesn't think, how could this, this how could my, my master be so unfair as to accuse me of this? No, he understands he's been framed. Now, as the manager, he has the books. He's got the financial ledger of things that have been sold, things that have been purchased, things that have been loaned. And the master, the rich man, wants those books. Hand me the books because I need to hire somebody else who can actually be faithful in this task. And so he's requested those. And so you can picture the manager leaving the rich man, leaving his master's office, so to speak, and going, whoa, okay, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do here because my world is all crumbling in. I've been caught. I've been framed. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And he knows he's got to go get the books. He's got to deliver them to his master. He's got, it seems like, a little bit of time, but it's only a little bit before he's going to be hunted down. And so he recognizes that his gravy train is drying up, that he's no longer getting uh, the, all the, the money and the possessions that he had. And so now he needs to figure out something else. And so that's where we go in verse 3, three is the, master's, uh, the manager's dilemma, rather. First his reckoning, second his dilemma. Look at verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Here the manager talks to himself. This is a method, a rhetorical method that Jesus uses in his parables to help us to reveal the heart of the one who's, who's, who's in the parable. We saw it in the rich fool in chapter 12. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. Remember? The prodigal son we just saw in chapter 15. He came to himself and he began to talk to himself. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father. And then we'll see it surface again in chapter 18 with the unjust judge. He knows he's got a dilemma and he's not sure what he will do. He's stuck. He's been working a white-collar job, a desk job, for all this time, and that is no longer available to him. And now he realizes that he could go out and, and do manual labor. He could go work and, and, and work by the sweat of his brow, but he says that he's, uh, he, he cannot do the labor. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Now, is this just because he's plain weak? Is this because of... Uh, that he's just too lazy and doesn't really want to get out there and do some physical labor? 
We do not know, but he's, we know he's not much of a, of a moral man, and so he's, he's looking for the easiest way out. And he doesn't want to humble himself to the stoop to the level of begging. And so he only cares about his comfort and his pride as he seeks to solve this problem. But he figures out a solution. Look at verse 4. That gives us to the manager's decision in verse 4. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. The, the text here gives us this indication that he's sitting there with his hands on his chin. He's thinking, thinking hard. And then he goes, ah, I've got it. I know what I'll do. And he, he's thought of a plan that will enable him to be received into people's houses. He'll have a place to stay, have a roof over his head when this whole thing falls apart when he loses his job. Notice that he isn't interested in making things right. This man is not looking to repent. He's not looking to say, yep, I sinned, I did something that was wrong, I need to go confess that sin, I need to apologize for defrauding his master. He's only looking out to save his own hide. But notice his plan is to get into people's houses. I mean, he's, he's looking not as a way to work and to earn money so that he can then be able to afford some housing. He, he wants to be a freeloader. He wants housing for free. He's going to find a way to scheme to get himself into people's houses. As a reader, we know his motivations. We know the ultimate re reasons for the actions he's about to take, but the people he's going to go talk to, the debtors he's going to deal with, don't know what he's trying to do. They aren't privy to his scheming here. And so we're left wondering, how is this guy going to simply head out and get some free lodging? Well, let's see, fourthly, the manager's implementation in verses 5 through 7. Here in these verses, he implements his plan, and we find out his plan includes some quid pro quo uh, arrangements with his master's debtors. He's going out and cutting a deal for them so that they like him, and that then down the road, when he's looking for a place to stay, he can knock on their door and say, hey, you know, I gave you that favor, I did that, that kind thing to you, you know, could you give me uh, a room to stay in? So again, there, there's this time that he needs to hand over the books to his master, but he's got a little window here, and he's trying to exploit that window. And he has to act quickly. And so he goes to these debtors. We have two examples that are given here. One who owes some oil, one who owes some wheat. These are very significant amounts of uh, product. It is uh, 100 measures of oil, 100 measures of wheat, the ESV footnote for the oil says it's about 875 gallons of oil and 1,000 bushels of wheat. These were significant debts, which means the debtors themselves had probably large operations too. But they could have borrowed money in order to, uh, and offered to pay back in these products, or they could have taken these products and needed to pay them back in kind. Either way, they were in substantial debt to this master, to this rich man. And so the manager needed to find a way to do a favor to these guys in order that he could get a favor back to him. And so he authorizes a change to the promissory notes so that the debt could be lessened. 
Notice that he has the debtor sit down and write out in their own hand a new bill. Verse 6, the man said, a hundred measures of oil, and he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. I think the quickly is tied into the fact that he's got to deal with this quickly before he has to hand over the books. And he has them write it out. They have to write out the new amount. They're either altering the original promissory note or writing an entirely new one. And it needs to be in their own handwriting. And so he asks them to sit down and do it quickly. The clock is ticking. And so by doing this, the debtor now owes less to the rich man. And the rich man, the master, loses money. This manager, remember, is being fired for the way that he handled his master's property, for being dishonest and untrustworthy. And now he is simply living out of that character all the more as he plans his exit strategy. This would be similar, trying to equate it to something in our lives, similar to a representative from the bank that issued your mortgage calling you one day and saying that he has some papers for you to sign to lower your debt by 20% or by 50%. And you say, sure. I don't need to know your reasons why. I'd be happy to do that. And even if the bank executives that found out later didn't like it, they can't go back and change them. They've been signed. They're all the official documents have been signed. The debt has been changed in the books. And so through this manager's carefully executed plan, he has ingratiated himself to these debtors and now he has a plan for lodging once he is fired. We then get a surprising finish to this parable in the first part of verse 8. Verse 8. Look at it with me. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In the Greek, the word for master here is kurios, which is translated far above throughout the New Testament as Lord. It's from the, whenever we see the Lord as Jesus the Lord, it's, it's the word kurios. It's the same word for Lord or master. And some argue that verse 8, where it says the master commended, they believe it should be translated the Lord with a capital L, that this is reference to Jesus commending the dishonest manager. And so they say the parable ends in verse 7, and Jesus then begins to give his commentary in verse 8. They say this because they can't fathom. Think of the, put yourself in, in the mindset of the rich man, the master of this unfaithful steward, that he would at any level somehow praise that manager, not only for what he, the, the defrauding he originally did, but the further defrauding he did in his exit strategy. Why would this master, this, this rich man, have any sort of praise for this manager, this steward? And it's a valid question. But on the other side of it is, I have a hard time seeing Jesus speaking uh, of himself in the third person as he gives an explanation of the parable. Again, Jesus would be talking and he'd have to say, and the Lord commended, past tense, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It seems to fit the narrative style of the parable better than Jesus beginning to change and speak to his audience there directly in front of him. 
Verse 9, we know that there is a clear change, and all commentators agree with that. It says, and I tell you, Jesus is speaking, then as uh, uh, commenting on his parable. But as commentators go both ways, most side with where our translations lie, which is to translate it as the master of the manager who gives this commendation. And that's where I believe is best to understand the verse as well. Even though we can imagine that master being unhappy with what the steward did, there's at some level he's impressed with the shrewdness of this man. He has admiration for how the manager thought on his feet, he acted quickly, and he secured something for himself in such a short amount of time. He's impressed. But notice here, the verse, again, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He did not praise him for his pilfering. He did not praise him for his unrighteous behavior. In fact, he's still called a dishonest or an unrighteous manager, a manager of unrighteousness. His character has not changed. But what he is commended for, notice, is his shrewdness. The word translated shrewdly here means prudently or with insight. The King James Version translated it wisely, which in one sense works and is accurate, but it could give the confusing message biblically that if you look in Proverbs, what is the foundation of wisdom in those who act wisely? It's the fear of the Lord. And this man is not acting in the fear of the Lord or any uh, or even trying to. And so, in terms of biblical wisdom, he's not acting according to biblical wisdom. And hence, translators have since gone with a different word like shrewdly or prudently, trying to convey there was a, there was a, a, a good thinking on his part, but it wasn't necessarily according to biblical wisdom in terms of a biblical theology of wisdom. And so shrewdly is a good translation. In fact, many translations I could check translated that way. This man has a crisis coming. Everything in his life is about to change. He's losing his job. He's going to head out. And he needs to do something in order to secure his future. And so he used his ingenuity to act swiftly and to figure out a way to provide for himself. And it's for this that the master praises him. And this is where I believe the parable ends in this first sentence of verse 8. And you might be wondering, well, what are we supposed to learn from that parable? And that is a great question. And that's why Jesus then goes on to explain it in the following verses. And so, as he helps to explain his own parable to us, this is where we are going to glean the three pieces of practical advice on how to use our money for spiritual gain. Three pieces of practical advice for how we can use our money for spiritual gain. The first piece of advice Jesus gives us is that we should spend your money with spiritual strategy. You should spend your money with spiritual strategy. Verses 8b through 9, the last part of verse 8. Jesus explains here the reason for the manager being commended. It says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Here, Jesus, you'll notice, identifies two groups of people. There's the sons of this world and there's the sons of light. 
This is referencing believers and unbelievers. The sons of this world or of this age are those whose ambitions and plans are for this age only. The sons of light, on the other hand, are those who are children of the God of light. And they are the ones who will shine in their everlasting kingdom of God. Hence, they are called the children of light. And as we see this language used throughout the New Testament, John chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, While you have the light, and he is the light, as he said, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He says, Believe in me so that you might become the sons of light. Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, Paul again says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so Luke, here in Luke 16, Jesus makes the observation that the people of this world are more shrewd with their generation or their kind than the people of light. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying by this statement. He's saying that the people of this world are driven by motives of self-interest. And thus, get this, they are more ingenious in their strategies that they employ for amassing and using their money. Because of their interest, their self-interest, they are ingenious, they are creative, they think of different ways to amass money and use money, they're strategic. I mean, just think of all the brain power that's used around the world every day for people in all nations and all different economies for trying to amass more money. There's great amount of human energy and human brain power in this world that is targeted towards that simple goal. It's, it's really incredible when you think about it. And so Jesus, in one sense, shines a light upon that and recognizes that reality that is there on this planet. And he highlights that ingenuity, or as is used in this parable, that shrewdness. That ingenuity utilized by unbelievers in making money for worldly ends often overshadows the ingenuity utilized by believers in making money for heavenly ends. The context here, remember, is about riches and possessions. So unbelievers are using their ingenuity and creativity to try to amass money all for worldly ends, and believers over here are not often using their creativity and being as driven and shrewd in trying to figure out ways to use money and finances for spiritual and heavenly ends. It's a subtle rebuke. He's making a comparison about the shrewd dealings of, with money as it relates to different ends for the different which these groups live for. It's because of that comment, that observation, that Jesus then turns in verse 9. And he brings the point home. Look at verse 9. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now notice as we begin to look at this verse that there's a tool at our disposal that Jesus calls unrighteous wealth or if it was translated literally the mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon is translated wealth here. 
And unrighteousness is the characteristic of this wealth. It can refer to this, the word mammon can refer to money, possessions, property, wealth, often in a negative tone, so that mammon is money in, as, a, as, a, as a lowercase g god that, that people serve and devote themselves to. By calling it unrighteous here, Jesus is not calling all money evil, as we mentioned earlier. There are examples all throughout Scripture of God blessing his people with financial resources. You can think of just Abraham or Job as two examples. But I think this label here as unrighteous wealth communicates three things about the wealth, three things about money. Number one, it can't be trusted. This label of unrighteous, unrighteousness is the same label given to the manager. A manager of unrighteousness, unrighteousness and wealth of unrighteousness. The manager could not be trusted. He was dishonest, as our, as our English Standard Version translates it, is a dishonest manager. And in both cases, the manager and the wealth, they cannot be ultimately leaned upon and trusted. The second thing that this label, unrighteous, tells us about this wealth is that, number two, it can be used for evil purposes. I read earlier as we started 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, that says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money can be used for so many wicked and evil purposes. But the third reason it can be called unrighteous is it's associated with this world of unrighteousness. Therefore, some translations call it worldly wealth. Or we might call it maybe secular wealth. It's wealth that relates to this world. We can't take it with us. This is the wealth that we have in our pockets. It's connected to our credit cards. It's in our bank accounts. It's in our 401ks. It's the money that we live our lives with upon this earth. It's worldly wealth. It's connected to this age and this world. But Jesus says we're supposed to do something with this unrighteous wealth or this worldly wealth. What are we to do with it? Notice what his command is in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of this unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So we're supposed to make friends with this money. We're supposed to make friends. Does this mean that we bribe people to be our friends? We go, no, that can't be right. Jesus doesn't want us just to bribe people to be friends with us. I believe that when he says to make friends with this money as it relates to eternal dwellings, and we'll get to explain that in a minute, he's talking about using our money to bless other people. We should seek to be generous to others and thereby make friends with them. As soon as you give somebody a gift, let's say it's a stranger and you walked up to a stranger and gave him $100 just because, there's a certain amount of friendship that comes across just because you have been generous to them and given them some money. But I think, so I think what this is talking about is that when we are generous to others, people's hearts are endeared to us because of the acts of generosity that we've shown to them. I mean, think of the gifts that you've been given. Maybe large, significant gifts, even more so, that those gifts, you suddenly feel a connection and a warm-heartedness towards the person who maybe sacrificed even to give that to you. You have a connection with them. There's suddenly a friendship with them because of what they've given to you. 
There's a friendship that's created in one sense. So too, we are to give our money to others for spiritual and eternal ends. That's what Jesus is saying in the end of verse 9, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. When it fails, what fails? When money fails. Friends, riches fail, money fails. All of it's going to be ripped out of our hands. We can't take any of it with us. Money will fail you. And so when it does, Jesus says, we're going to need to figure out a plan like the steward did. Jesus wants us to think beyond this life, wants to think about us beyond the grave. And so he talks about us entering into heavenly dwellings or eternal dwellings. The word dwellings literally means tabernacles, tents. So pulling this all together, here's what I think Jesus wants us to do. Strange language, I, I, I know. But if we're trying to pull together what Jesus says in the, steward, uh, the parable of the steward, along with his words here, I believe that he wants us to learn from the quick-witted steward and that we should act with decisive shrewdness for the cause of the gospel. As one commentator put it this way, he said, disciples are to exploit wisely the money at their disposal by disposing of it to the benefit of others. Disciples are to exploit wisely the money at their disposal by disposing of it to the benefit of others. As Christians, we should not be greedy with our money, but get this, neither should we be indifferent. We should be scheming, literally scheming and thinking and using our own ingenuity of ways that we can use our funds for the cause of Christ to win people to Jesus. And as people are one to Christ, we are making friends that we very well may meet one day in heaven. I think that's what this verse is saying. As we utilize the funds shrewdly for the cause of the gospel, that we win people to Christ and there are friends that we may meet one day that may even make it to heaven before us that will welcome us when we reach on that day. So the question ask ourselves, are we using our finances, using our money in such a way to bless other people for the cause of the gospel that one day there will be friends that will greet us and meet us because of the investment that we've made for the cause of Christ? Will some Ugandan believer come up and thank you because you helped subsidize a biblical stewardship program that helped provide microloans and help them get on their feet? Will a tribe in Papua New Guinea come thanking you for your support of church planters and Bible translators in their language that helped get them out of paganism and see the beauty of Christ. Friends, the opportunities, the possibilities are endless for what our money could do for the cause of Christ. And Jesus wants us to think shrewdly and creatively in those ways. So the first piece of practical advice that we get from this passage is that we should spend our money with spiritual strategy. But the second thing that he tells us is that you should steward your money with faithfulness. You should steward your money with faithfulness. And we see this in verses 10 through 12. You could hear someone who listens to Christ's words in verse 9, and he says, well, you know, 
I would give more work to the cause of the gospel. I would give more money to the church. I would support more missions work. But, you know, I just, if I had more, I would, I would give. I just don't have much right now. If I had more, um, I could be more generous. I believe that Jesus takes that claim head on here in these verses, in verses 10 through 12. Because he goes on to say that it doesn't matter how much we have. It's a matter of our own character. It's a matter of how faithful are we with what we have. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Jesus says that we need to be, have the character of one of faithfulness. That we need to be people who are faithful. And our character will then dictate our generosity and dictate how we handle our finances. In other words, our character and our generosity is not shown when we have a lot. It's actually shown when we have a little. And if we have a little, and what we do with that little, then our character is revealed, and then there more is entrusted. This means that a heart of faithfulness to God and generosity to God's work is cultivated in the small things first. I often hear people say that they will give to the Lord's work once they have met their financial goals, such as saving up for a house. Or in the case of college students, once I get a career and a, and a full-time job, get out of school. But Jesus says that the heart patterns of faithfulness are being cultivated even when we only have a little bit. This means that a college student who is selfish in his finances, if unchanged, will grow to be a business executive who is selfish in his finances because the heart is the same. However, it also means on the flip side, friends, that a young couple who is generous with the little that they have now, God will entrust to them with more so that they can continue living by those priorities. God wants us to look beyond this world. We're not living to amass our kingdom here. We're looking to give so that we might store up treasures in heaven. Notice verse 11. He says, if then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, which is a hint over back to verse 9, right, that talks about that worldly wealth. If we haven't been faithful with the money we've been given us here in this life, who, how will we be entrusted with the true riches? In other words, if we've not been faithful with our earthly riches, how will we be entrusted with heavenly wealth? Now, this doesn't mean that if we use our money selfishly now that we're somehow going to lose our salvation, but I think it may mean that we may lose some of our reward in heaven. While we all have equal salvation and equal access to heaven, the rewards in heaven are not going to be all equal. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying here is that those who do not know Christ and thus are unfaithful with their money will not experience the joys of the true riches of heaven. In other words, we're called to submit to Christ, follow his instructions regarding our wealth, and we'll one day experience the true riches that will never fade and never fail. He echoes a similar point in verse 12. He goes on, And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you what is your own? Notice the parallelism with verse 11. There he called it unrighteous wealth. Here he calls it, notice, 
that which is another's. Well, whose is all of our money? Who does all of our money belong to? It belongs to the Lord. This is a reminder that we are stewards, friends, that all of the wealth, all the money that we have is not ours to begin with. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to Him, and He gives it to us to steward on His behalf. We should use according to His priorities. And so He says if we can't be faithful in being a steward with His money here, then how will we be given that which is our own? The own here refers to that which we'll receive in heaven. The personal reward, I believe, that will be given to God's children. There are heavenly riches that are coming to us and we can prepare for those by using our money well now in this life. And so we must steward it with faithfulness. The promise is that if we steward well now, will receive far more in the age to come. In his book, Giving is the Good Life, by author Randy Alcorn, he tells the story of a World War II bomber pilot named Orville Rogers. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He, uh, late in his life, he was an avid runner. He was once featured on ABC Evening News as a 100-year-old because he broke five world track records, bringing his total of records to 18. But that wasn't his greatest achievement. His greatest life achievement is not widely known. He, over his decades-long career as a air, commercial airline pilot, his total earnings were $1.5 million, which was an impressive figure at the time. God blessed Orville's savings and his investments, and instead of spending or hanging on to his wealth, he and his wife gave away more than $30 million, mostly to missions. Randy Alcorn concludes with these words. He says, We don't know until eternity how many people came to faith in Jesus because Orville gave what he could have kept. Friends, we need to be faithful with what God has given us here because we're looking unto eternity and who knows what God will do with that. He blesses it far and above what we could ever ask or think. And so Jesus, here in this text, I believe, instructs us, number one, to spend our money with spiritual strategy. Secondly, to steward our money with faithfulness. And thirdly, and finally, he calls you to serve the Lord with your money. Serve the Lord with your money. And we see this in our final verse this morning, verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This final piece of advice, this final instruction, gets to the very foundation, the very layer, the very root of our hearts and our lives. He addresses not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. Not just what we're doing, but who we're serving as we do it. He's addressing our ultimate allegiances that undergird our use of money. And what he reveals here is quite profound as it is simple. He says that there's just two masters, God and money in this case, which tells us a great deal that, there, that money itself can be a false god. Money itself can demand worship and service, that it can demand that we bow down before it and give our lives to it and sacrifice everything for it. 
just as God calls us to do that for him. He says you can't serve God and serve money. If you're going to be devoted to one, you can't be devoted to the other. Serving money and serving God are mutually exclusive. Now, this doesn't mean that he wants us to get rid of all of our money and that he wants us to live the ascetic life and we shouldn't touch that filthy lucre. No, we need to use it, as we've already seen, for spiritual and strategic purposes. We can serve God with our money. We can accumulate and use it for his purposes and for his glory. But the fundamental question that this verse presents all of us is who is your Lord? Who is your master? Who do you serve? Do you serve mammon, wealth, money, possessions, all the things that this world has to offer? Or do you serve Jesus Christ? Will you take the true king, the true Lord, or will you take a cheap substitute? You cannot serve both. Your ultimate love and loyalty will go to one or to the other. A man may claim to be a Christian, and yet he also bows down before the God of money. He may do many Christian things, but Jesus says all those things that aren't done because he loves God shows ultimately that he hates and despises God because he truly loves his other God instead. Of course, because this hypothetical man is a Christian, he's going to dispute the claim. No, I love God. I serve the Lord. But Jesus' message here means that something else has taken place, first place in his heart. Everything else has taken a distant second. And this is what Jesus is talking about. When there's a, 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 a first priority in our hearts, it means that everything else is a distant second. Hence the word hate or despise. We saw this language a couple chapters earlier where Jesus says, if you do not hate your own father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. The love for Christ must be so dominant that everything else takes a distant second. And so for those who serve money, Jesus might be second, but it's a distant second. On the flip side, if you ultimately serve Jesus, then money will take a distant second. Friends, we need to see this verse and recognize the spiritual power that money holds over us. It can have a competing power of the presence of God in our lives. That's a scary reality. That this isn't just another thing that we kind of deal with. That this is, in one sense, great spiritual power that we must deal rightly with. The one Bible commentator says it this way. He says, money is akin to a demonic power that can mesmerize us with its attractions and claim our service. The double-minded person will inevitably fall away to money and devote energy to its service. This is what Paul talked about in the verses I read at the beginning of service, that many have plunged themselves into danger and peril because of seeking after riches. Many have fallen away from the faith because of riches. Have you seen that in maybe a friend or a family member? As prosperity and riches increase, their interest in the things of the Lord faded. They no longer need God because they've got all that they need. 
Friends, this is the danger that lurks around each one of us, and we must see the danger that money can pose. So I exhort you to examine yourself. What place does money hold in your heart and life? Is it first place or is it second? This can be you that, that have many resources at your disposal. It could be those of you that have virtually nothing, such as you teenagers that are living in the houses of your parents. But you're cultivating a heart towards money and finances, towards the possessions and the things of this world. Are you craving after those things? Or are you longing after Christ and see him first in your heart and life? Ultimately, we know the greatest commandment. We are called to serve Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. He must have the first place. So friends, how do we be free from this love of money? It's only by having a superior love for Christ. This power of a greater affection. At the core of our being, we are to be devoted to Christ. And everything else flows from that commitment. We are stewards of God's resources. We don't own any of this. It's all His. And we are to spend according to His priorities. And so we must use our ingenuity to devise ways to maximize spiritual profit with our money. God wants us to be faithful with whatever amount that we have. And when it comes to money, we often ask the wrong question. The question is not, how much do I need to give, but how much do I need to really keep? And then we seek to give the rest away. Let's ask the Lord's help as we bow in prayer. Oh, Father, we come before you and we ask that you would please help us and assist us, Lord, as we seek to submit our lives to you, seek to honor you with our wealth and with the money that you've given us. Oh, Lord, may we seek to think and scheme and plan and ways to use the money that you've given to each one of us unto your glory, unto your praise. Lord, may we not be greedy and may we not be indifferent to the resources that you've given to us. But may we seek with the time that we have left to use it for the spiritual benefit of others and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.